Morning, Grace. Ezra chapter 2. We're continuing our series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah called The City of God. While you're turning there to Ezra chapter 2, I did mention last week that we're going to do two sermons out of chapter 2. Halfway through this week, I thought there was a third sermon there, and then yesterday I was thinking maybe there's a fourth, but we're going to finish it today, Lord willing, and move on to chapter three. So this list of seemingly boring names is actually full of so much truth that we could spend at least four weeks there. Ezra chapter two, while you're turning there, let me remind you, uh, tonight at six o'clock I'm teaching a class on discipleship in the education building across the parking lot. Um, please come. If you're new to Jesus, maybe you don't even know Jesus yet, and you just want to know what Christianity is about, what does it mean to follow him, please come. Or if you're a new believer and you want to learn and grow in the basics of discipleship, please come. Or if you're a Christian and you want to disciple people but you don't even know where to start, please come. We have plenty of books and study guides left. I would love to see uh, many more of you there. That's at 6 o'clock. So Ezra chapter 2, let's pray once more. Father, thank you that you satisfy weary, thirsty sinners like all of us gathered here today. That your grace is sufficient, that it is enough. And I pray this morning you would impress that truth upon our hearts more and more, God. That you love messy sinners with all their junk when they come and they find hope and redemption in the perfect life of your son, Jesus. So satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. We ask this by the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but the Olympics have drained me. I am tired Too much staying up to watch people chasing the gold, chasing their Olympic dream. Well, I need my beauty sleep. Sleep is the gold that I've been dreaming of for the last several weeks. And that reminds me of this great episode of The Twilight Zone titled The Rip Van Winkle Caper. It's a story about the length that people will go to in order to get something that they treasure. It's 1961, and four men have just robbed a train of $1 million in gold bars. They're hiding out in a cave in Death Valley, California, where they plan to wait 100 years and then resurface and spend their money. Now, how will they wait 100 years? Well, first of all, it's the twilight zone, so you have to give them that. But how will they do this? Well, one of the men named Farwell is a scientist who has created suspended animation chambers for each of the men. And they will enter these chambers and sleep for 100 years. And at the end of 100 years, they will wake up and be the same. And they will re-enter the world and spend their riches and their crime will be long forgotten. Well, their plan works and they emerge from their suspended animation chambers 100 years into the future. Fast forward through the episode. Now, I'm not going to spoil it all for you. So we fast forward through the episode and there is just one man left, the scientist, Mr. Farwell. He is walking along a desert highway in Death Valley, California with a backpack full of gold bars. But he eventually dies of thirst and heat exhaustion. 
But seconds before he dies, as he's laying on the ground, a man finds Farwell, and Farwell tells the man, Mister, Mister, this, this is gold here. You can have it. You can have it. Drive me to town if you give me water. Gold, it's real gold. You can have it. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. And then Farwell dies. The man who found him returns with this gold bar in his hand. He returns to his futuristic spaceship-looking car, and his wife is in the car, and he tells his wife what happened. The wife says to her husband, Who is it, George? What's the matter with him? The man, George, says, Some old tramp. That's what he was. He's dead. The wife says, What's that? Referring to the gold bar in his hand. And George says, Gold. That's what he said it was. He wanted to give it to me in exchange for a lift into town. His wife says, gold? Now what in the world would he be doing with this gold? George replies, I don't know. He's probably off his rocker. Anybody walking in the desert this time of day would be off his rocker. Can you imagine that? He offered this to me as if it was really worth something. The wife says, you know, wasn't it worth something once, George? I mean, didn't people use gold for money? George replies, sure, about a hundred years or so ago before they found a way of manufacturing it. Rod Serling closes out the episode with this. The last of four Rip Van Winkles, who all died precisely the way they lived, chasing an idol across the sand to wind up bleached dry in the hot sun as so much desert flotsam, worthless as the gold bouillon they built a shrine to. Tonight's lesson in the Twilight Zone. These four men found pleasure in what they treasured most, which was gold. It was the idol that they chased across the desert sand. It was brought, what brought them the most joy, and it is ultimately what led to their deaths. And that's what happens to every human being in this world who does not find his or her joy in God. It may be eternal death in hell because this person has never repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. Or it may be that way on earth as a Christian, as a disciple. It may be a life of death, a life of sadness, a life of sorrow, a spiritual life of heat exhaustion, a spiritual life of thirsting all the time, unquenched thirst. Because they haven't found their joy in Jesus, their treasure, even if they're a Christian. Why? Because we were made to find our joy in God. That's why our mission statement states here that we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and to enjoy God everywhere and in everything. We were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Which is why the Westminster Shorter Catechism even begins that way. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I think that's why John Piper is correct when he says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Now, we will not perfectly be satisfied in him because we're sinners our affections go up and down but I think at a very basic level we should be able to say 
Jesus is my treasure. He satisfies me. I don't love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But when I blow it, he welcomes me back with open arms in grace. See, we were made to glorify God, and we do that most when we enjoy him above all things, when he satisfies us more than anything in this world. That's what this sermon is about, and that's what I think Ezra 2 is about. The big idea of our sermon, the big idea, the gold bar that I stole from the Desiring God website and that seeps out of the cracks of these verses is this. Pleasure is the measure of your treasure. Pleasure is the measure of your treasure. Now, I know what you're thinking. Really, you get that out of 70 verses of hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names? Yes. Now, let me unpack this idea, this big idea, and I will show you how 42,360 homeless Israelites teach us this truth by what was happening in their life after 70 years of exile in Babylon. Augustine said it this way, where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. And where your treasure is, there is your heart. That should remind you of something that Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the pleasure that we take in anything is a measure of what we value and what we treasure most. The litmus test for what we value is determined by how much delight it brings us. The litmus test for what we value most in this world is what brings us the most joy, the most pleasure, the most delight. Let me say that again. The litmus test for what we value most in this world is what brings us the most joy, the most pleasure, the most delight. And I'm going to try to convince you in this sermon that Jesus should be your treasure in this life, that he, above all things, brings you the most joy, the most delight, the most pleasure, more than your spouse, more than your kids, more than your grandkids, more than your bank accounts and your 401k, that he should be the one who stirs your affections more than anything in this world. And I hope by the end of this sermon that you will be like the man in Matthew 13, that Pastor James just read. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, why does he buy that field? Because he wants the treasure that's in the field. I hope that you will do whatever it takes every day of your life to drink in more and more of the grace of Jesus, to increase and to maximize your joy in him. I hope you become addicted to grace. I hope you have an irresistible urge every day to feast on the grace of God that he gives you in the gospel, that he gives you in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, why 
Precisely because of this. Because pleasure is the measure of your treasure. And if the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is your greatest delight in, this, in, in your life, if he is your treasure, then that will be seen in your life. By how you live, how you spend your money, what you do with your time. And if Jesus is your greatest treasure in this life, then God is glorified. And that is why you were made. That you would glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's how I think these 42,360 homeless Israelites lived. The joy that they had in Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, catapulted them to leave the comforts provided to them by the new Persian government that had just recently defeated the Babylonians. This is what caused them to leave comfort in Persia. And it was, and caused them to go to Israel, which was for the, the most part, unknown to most of these people because they were born in Babylon and they'd never even seen Jerusalem. So what would cause them to leave that and go to a place with no security and not even a home to live in? What makes somebody do something crazy like that? What makes people leave the comforts of Persia's big government? What makes people travel dangerous roads over a several months journey to go back to a place where they don't even have a home, where they're gonna have to live in tents, have no roof over their heads, no jobs. What makes someone do this? Well, one, God stirred their hearts. We saw that two weeks ago in Ezra 1. God stirred their hearts to do this, and God stirred what was already happening in their hearts because they loved him. When he began stirring their heart to go back, it was natural for them to go back because they were loving him, and he was their treasure, and he was their delight. And then God stirred their hearts to be a part of his story. That the gospel would spread to the nations. They were driven by a passion to see God glorified as he redeems sinners. They were driven by a passion to be the city of God. To be a part of his story of redemption. They were stirred up with a passion to feast on his grace as a community. Now let's look now and see how this God-centered joy catapulted these people into living for the kingdom of God, into being involved in the drama of redemption, into joining God on his mission. Look at verses 36 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord. The priests, the sons of Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. I know that doesn't necessarily warm your heart, but if you add up the number of priests that returned during the first wave of returnees, you get 4,289. This is about 10% of the 42,360 people who are mentioned here in Ezra chapter 2. That means one in every 10 returnees was a priest. One in every 10 people that returned was a priest. Now why? Why were there so many priests who returned to Jerusalem to restore worship? First, it's because Yahweh in his goodness had provided spiritual leaders to care for the nation and to assist them in worship. It's God in his goodness who has provided spiritual leaders. And he does that for churches Secondly, because the priests were passionate, I think, they desired to restore worship. 
and to serve as they were meant to. And when they heard the decree of Cyrus to return, they were the first ones to get on the train. Well, the main duties of the priests were this. They were to teach the people the word of God. They were to lead the people in worship. They were to make intercessory prayer for the people. They were to provide access to God through the sacrifices. And they were to take care of the sanctuary and the temple. Yahweh The sovereign Lord was the treasure of their lives and they wanted to serve him and assist the people of God in corporate worship. The priests show us by how many returned that pleasure is the measure of your treasure. Understand this, Grace. What we value most will produce joy in us. The litmus test for what we value most in this world is what brings us the most joy, the most pleasure, and the most delight. The priests were captivated by Yahweh, and they delighted to serve him. But there's another group of returnees that teach us this as well. Look at verses 40 through 42. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel, of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatida, and the sons of Shobai. In all, 139. Now, the Levites were priests, but they also served in various capacities uh, at the temple. There was one Levite for every 58 priests that returned. One Levite to serve and to help 58 priests. This is not much of an incentive to return. One, one Levite and 58 priests are telling him what to do. The Levites were going to be overworked, but they wanted to serve the Lord. And so they returned. And the singers that are listed sang. Seems like it wouldn't be that big of a deal, but the singers were needed in corporate worship. As Alan Ross says, singing is not therefore an optional embellishment of worship. It is a necessary requirement of it. By singing, the worshipers lift up their voices in beautiful words and memorable sounds appropriate to the beauty of the holiness of God. Singing songs of praise was and is the appropriate and enthusiastic way for the people to tell of the glorious and gracious works of the Lord. We are a singing people, Grace. Never forget that. We are a singing people. And when we gather on Sunday morning to sing, if the words are Christ-centered and they're Bible-centered and they're centered on God, when we sing to him, he receives it. Not because we have good voices. God's not Simon Cowell, okay? Some of you have bad voices. You wonder, does God really like my voice? Yes, he does. Some of us have better voices, but we're called to come and sing, even if we sing off key, even if the guy next to us doesn't sit next to us next week. We're called to sing because we are a singing people. It's what we do. Well, there were not only Levites who were overworked and singers who would sing But there were also gatekeepers. The gatekeepers served as watchmen uh, on the the walls as well as helped worshipers move their animals into the courtyard to worship. 
They permitted qualified worshipers to enter the sanctuary, making sure the animals that they brought were without blemish. They helped people prepare for worship as they entered the sanctuary. This was their job, to help people enter the presence of the Lord. We could use some gatekeepers around here. What if you came in one morning and we had people at the door asking you as you came in, why are you here today? Tell me why you're here. Tell me why you're here to worship the Lord. What reason do you have to lift your voice and sing and worship the Lord? Now, wouldn't that change how we do church here? Would you be able to say, I'm here to worship the living God. I'm here to drink once again from the fountain of living water. I'm here to get drunk, intoxicated on his grace to me, a messed up sinner. Wouldn't that change how we do worship here if we had people out there? What would happen if we came in here and we said, I'm here to worship the Lord. I'm here to increase and maximize my joy in him. I'm here to drink from the fountain of his grace. I'm here to eat from the banquet table of his grace. I'm here to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. You see, that might just change the way we do church. I challenge some of you. Wait at the doors next week and ask people, why are you here? Uh, We'll probably freak some people out. New time, first time visitors will never come back. But wouldn't it change worship? Or maybe we could just come up to somebody you know and say, why are you here today? What reason do you have to worship the living God, to worship Jesus? That just might kind of recalibrate things as we come in here on Sunday morning. Well, what made the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers so involved in corporate worship? I think it's that they treasured Yahweh, and they wanted to see his fame spread to the nations. They're just reminding us that pleasure is the measure of your treasure. Whatever you find the greatest joy in will determine what you love most. The litmus test for what we value most in this world is what brings us the most joy, the most pleasure, the most delight. And we'll see it with the next group as well. So look at verses 43 through 58. The temple servants the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Rei, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uza, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephesim, the sons of Bagbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Bazluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Naziah, and the sons of Hatifa. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Ja'alah, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth Hazabayim, and the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Now, please don't email me if I mispronounce one of those names. If you are so connected that I said it differently than I did this week, please don't email me. 
here's, here's what I told someone last week. Like, wow, you did so great. So here's the thing about reading these Old Testament genealogies. You just gotta act like you know what you're doing and just keep going. And if they get hung up on a name and they think, oh, you mispronounced that, you keep reading. And by the time they look and say, he didn't pronounce that right, you're eight or 10 names ahead of them and they'll never be able to find you again. Just read it with conviction and move on. Well, these temple servants and Solomon's servants, the ones with the weird names, they did very menial tasks in corporate worship. Fetching clean water, cleaning up all of the blood from the sacrifices, swatting and killing all the flies. Remember, this is a slaughterhouse. Corporate worship in Israel was a slaughterhouse, bringing animals all day long, slitting their throat, throwing their blood everywhere, cooking body parts, disposing of body parts, washing hands, washing feet. This was a slaughterhouse, flies everywhere. Imagine the stench. I wish this was a scratch and sniff Bible so you could scratch that and smell the slaughterhouse flavor coming out of this verse. Who gets excited about mopping up blood, sweeping up body parts? That's what the temple servants and Solomon's servants were doing. And this reminds us that much of the ministry that we do here is messy and menial and often thankless. Changing diapers in the nursery. Picking up and vacuuming the 10,000 pieces that come from that one little goldfish in the nursery. If you ever served there, you know what I'm talking about. The temple servants show us that worship is not configured by how important your service is, but by faithfulness. And many of you serve around here and do often very menial, often thankless tasks. Understand this. God is watching. He will reward you. Do not Give up. An interesting note here about the temple servants and Solomon's servants from one commentator says, 68% of the temple servants are foreign names. 33 to 40% of Solomon's servants are foreign names. Here we have a group of servants who are not native Israelites, but whose ancestors were likely captured during David's time and Solomon's time during war. They were taken captive into Babylon along with the rest of the Israelites, but they return with the Israelites because they had joined the people of God. Do you see how God's providence guides us? Think about it. Years ago, some of these servants' ancestors were taken captive by David and Solomon. They came into Israel. They heard the gospel as they visited the temple. They heard about Yahweh. They believed and trusted in Yahweh. And now many years later, their descendants are still a part of the community of God. See, that's how God's sovereignty works. Some change in life, loss of job, chance meeting becomes the thing or the moment that you hear the gospel and then it begins to go to each generation. That's how God's sovereignty works. Some change in life, loss of job, chance meeting, someone picks you up and takes you to Awana as a young kid, and that becomes the thing or the moment where you hear the gospel, and then it begins to go to each generation within your family. And we see the same providence working in the lives of the next group. Look at verses 59 through 63. 
The following were those who came up from Tel Mila, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emmer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, 652. Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Hababiah, the sons of Hakoz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name. These sought the registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult the Urim and Thummim. Now this is sad. Long before computers, long before the thumb drive, long before floppy disks, records were kept on paper. And these men could use a thumb drive right now to stick into a computer to say, hey, see, we're of the the, uh, Levitical descent. Our our grandfathers and great-grandfathers were priests. But they couldn't take a chance to let these men lead worship unless they could prove that they are of the priestly line. Or they couldn't serve as priests and couldn't eat the holy food. These men were told to wait until the Urim and Thummim could be consulted. The, the Urim and Thummim are translated as lights and uprightness. That's what the words mean. But they were used to receive oracles from God or to discern his will. Now we have no idea what they look like. Probably they were maybe like dice, some sort of stone or wood or bone and perhaps there are two different colors and you would roll them and, and say, God, what's your will? Roll it. Wouldn't it be great to have these now? And then you get the answer and the priest would keep them in their, in their pocket close to their heart and when they were needed, they would take them out and roll them and do whatever they did. Well, here in Ezra 2, these priests could not prove their priestly lineage so they would have to wait until someone discovered the Urim and Thummim And then that would reveal whether or not they were of the priestly line. But here's what we can glean from this. Here's the application. It's this. Stay with the people of God. Stay with the people of God. Sometimes there are quote-unquote hard providences in our lives. We lose a loved one. We lose a job. Someone hurts us. And so many people respond to these situations by leaving the church. These priests did not lose their identity cards. These papers were lost as families were carted off to Babylon. It wasn't their fault. They didn't cause this. But these priests, in spite of what happened to them, in spite of what happened to them, something out of their control that was done to them, in spite of that, they stuck with the people of God and they did not become bitter or pull away from the people of God. Some people here, you may not be born again. You may not be a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian, this is the place you need to be. This is where you will hear the gospel. This is where you will hear and learn true reality. So don't leave. Stay put. Come back next week. And in time, we pray that God would open your eyes to see Jesus as the greatest treasure in this world. Now look at verses 64 through 69. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. 
And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. This last section recaps those who returned under the first wave of returnees, and it further highlights our big idea that pleasure is the measure of your treasure. And that's, we see that in verses 68 and 69. Look in verse 68, it says that they made freewill offerings. The freewill offering was an offering that you could bring to the sanctuary, to the temple, anytime you wanted to. For those moments where you were just overflowing with praise, overflowing that God was gracious and merciful to you, a sinner. Those times when praise was just flowing out of your heart, you could say, I'm just going to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice because I'm so overwhelmed at how good he is to me, that he forgives me and he loves me. And when you offered a free will offering, what you would offer is actually a peace offering. The peace offering was the offering that you would offer when you offered the free will offering. The peace offering you can read about in Leviticus 3. You would take an animal and present the animal to the priest. Uh, They would slit its throat, throw his blood in the appropriate places, and the fat and the inner parts would be burned up on the offering, on the altar. It would go to the Lord. The right shoulder and the thigh would be given to the priest for he and his family to eat. And then the rest of the animal would be eaten right then and there, you and all the people that were with you worshiping in the temple. So this is, this is a, a picture of what the Lord's Supper is like, eating in community, celebrating atonement. Well, the fat went to the Lord because the fat was considered the best part, so it was burned up on the altar. The kidneys and the other internal organs represented the internal emotions and affections of the worshiper. So when a free will offering was being presented to the Lord, it could be done anytime you just wanted to come and give thanks to the Lord for his goodness to you. You would offer this peace offering, and in the peace offering, you were celebrating the peace that you had with God. You, a messed up sinner, you would be celebrating the peace that you have with God because this animal, because of substitutionary atonement. All this is a picture of Jesus who would come. And in that moment... This is what you were saying when you offered it. I'm giving all of me to you, Lord. I'm yours. You stir my emotions and my affections more than anything in this world. You're my treasure. You're my joy. You are my delight. That's what you would be saying with the free will offering. This is what Israel offered when they returned to the decimated ruins of Jerusalem and the temple. But then verse 69, we see that pleasure is the measure of their treasure, not just in the free will offerings, but in what they gave. Verse 69 says they gave according to their ability. These returnees arrived with a lot of money, trains full of gold and silver, 1,333 pounds of gold, 6,300 pounds of silver. This means that some of these Israelites were successful businessmen and businesswomen when they were in Babylon and Persia. 
Remember in Jeremiah 29, 7, Jeremiah said, seek the peace of the city, seek the welfare of the city, the shalom, because when the city prospers, you will prosper. And some of these Israelites did that very thing. And so that accounts for some of the wealth that they have here. In addition, we saw in Ezra 1 that Cyrus told all the, uh, the people in his kingdom, when the Israelites go back to Israel, help your friends out, give them money. So those two things are what's happening here, why they're so wealthy. But remember this, Ezra 2, these are uncertain times. Some people are going back to Jerusalem and they have never seen Jerusalem and Solomon's temple and all of its splendor. We'll see that next week. They didn't know where they'd live, how they would survive, where they would work. And what did they do when they passed the offering plates? These people give big time. In times of uncertainty, they say, I'm, so, I'm all about corporate worship. I'm all about Yahweh's fame spreading to the nations. I have to give to this because Yahweh is my treasure. What makes people leave? A secure home in Persia even though it's not the promised land of Israel? What makes them leave and return to their homeland in such uncertain times? What kind of people uproot themselves from the comfort and ease and wealth and travel miles upon miles to a foreign place that their ancestors called home? The only kind of people who give so sacrificially are people who treasure Jesus Christ more than anything. These Israelites weren't chasing the idol of gold across the deserts of the ancient Near East like those four men in the twilight zone. These returnees know that there's a treasure in Jerusalem, the restoration of corporate worship, which will do two things. One, it will spread the fame of Yahweh's name to the nations. And two, it will further fan the flame of their personal devotions. They realize that corporate worship is intrinsically connected to their little private quiet times, which is them and Jesus. As Alan Ross says, since worship is a communal activity, all the private acts of devotion, read quiet time here, all the private acts of devotion will find their greatest expression and their divinely intended purpose in the assembly of believers. And when communal worship is glorious, it will in turn inspire greater private worship. So it's as you are seeking God each week, reading his word, praying, spending time with him, all of that is prepping you for Sunday morning worship on the Sabbath with the people of God. And as you come here and it's glorious worship, then that catapults you back to private devotion in your quiet time. And then there's this cycle. So let me ask you, are you passionate about corporate worship here every Sunday? Do you serve others? Do you use your time, talents, and treasure for the kingdom of God? Do you give regularly and sacrificially? If you're lacking in any of these areas, you need to be redirected to the gospel. The gospel is what will motivate you. Jesus will motivate you when you're exhausted and thirsty and when you have a dehydrated heart. Joy in God, not guilt, should motivate you to do anything in the Christian life. Joy in God and not guilt is what should motivate us to do anything in the Christian life. We're not here to guilt you to do anything. We don't want you to serve because you feel guilty. I gotta serve. We want you to serve because you say, I wanna serve. We're here to point you to Jesus Christ and all that he has done for you and we hope that that will motivate you to glut yourself on all that God is for you in Christ. Pleasure 
is the measure of your treasure. The pleasure that we take in anything is a measure of what we value, what we treasure. The litmus test for what we value is determined by how much delight it brings us. The litmus test for what we value most in this world is what brings us the most joy, the most pleasure, the most delight. And that's what these 42,360 homeless Israelites would tell you today. In fact, that's what they are saying to you today from this seemingly boring and seemingly dead chapter. Maybe the reason this chapter seems boring and dead to us is because we have dead hearts, because our hearts are dehydrated. Maybe God is boring to us. Whatever you value the most in this world will produce joy in you. My prayer is that Jesus Christ will be the treasure in the field for you and that you will do whatever it takes to maximize your joy in him. So come this morning. Come to Jesus with your mess. As my friend Kim Crandall said on Twitter yesterday, can we all just stop hiding our messes from each other and let grace do its work? Jeez, can we do that? Can we stop hiding all of our mess and just come here and say, I'm messed up and I need Jesus and he satisfies. Come this morning with thirsty, dehydrated, heat exhausted hearts and drink of his grace. That's exactly why you are made to treasure Jesus above all things. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, you don't know Jesus, the first thing you gotta do is repent, turn from your sins, admit it. That you're a rebel and an enemy of God and cling and by faith believe that Jesus lived the life that you could never live and he died the death that you deserve. But if you are a believer this morning, believe the gospel again. You don't have to give Jesus something to receive his grace. Don't try and give him a gold bar this morning and say, I'll give you this, please. I'll give you this. Just take me to town and give me water. He doesn't want your gold bar. He just wants you to say, you're what I need. He doesn't want the gold bar of your goodness. He just wants you to come and say, you will satisfy my thirst. You and you alone. He does not want your gold bar, Grace. Don't try to give him your good works and your goodness. He just wants you to come and say, you're my gold bar. You're my treasure. You see, Jesus is the one who comes to us as we are laying on the side of the desert highway. He comes to us. He comes to us, the thirsty, the dehydrated, the thirsty and dehydrated sinners suffering spiritual heat exhaustion, and he quenches our thirst with his grace. It is finished There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You've been adopted into his family as sons and daughters. You are forgiven. You are clean. Drink that in and be satisfied this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. God, so often we try to bring different kinds of gold bars to give to you. Our gold bar of goodness. I'm a good person. I'm not that bad. And you're there just to quench our thirst with who you are. Oh God, we come messy and thirsty and dehydrated and suffering spiritual heat exhaustion this morning and we say, satisfy us. Satisfy us as we drink from the fountain 
of living water and then get great glory. Be honored and glorified when we say that you satisfy us because you are our treasure, our gold bar in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.